You're listening to Florida Capital Conversations, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's Tallahassee office. Each episode of this series will take a look at the many different aspects of state and local government through the lens of our experienced legal professionals. Our hosts, Nate Adams and Mia McCown, have a wide range of Florida governmental experience and offer a seat at the table to everyone who listens to these candid conversations. Welcome to our Florida Capital Conversations podcast series. Today, our subject is Florida tort reform, and our guests are William Large and Tiffany Roddenberry. My name is Nathan Adams. My co-hosts are Mia McCown and Brent Cooper. We are so pleased that you have joined us today to consider another important issue associated with state government affecting the business community and our daily lives as Floridians. Well, Mia, let's get started. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. William, it's so good to see you today and have you here on our podcast. As we talked a little bit before, never did we think probably back in the day when we were at the University of Florida that we would be here on a podcast doing this, talking about important issues going on in our state. I know a lot about your history, and but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing here in Tallahassee as it relates, because after all, we're here about capital conversations. Thank you for uh, having me. Yes, um, a little bit about my background. I went to undergrad and law school at the University of Florida. I practiced insurance defense litigation in Orlando for about seven years, where I represented hospitals, doctors, and nursing homes, and primarily medical malpractice cases. I had a unique opportunity to come to Tallahassee in 2000 to work in the Bush administration. I was the general counsel at the Florida Department of Health. I worked on several civil justice reform issues, including medical malpractice reform in 2002 and 2003. And from there, I served as Governor Jeb Bush's deputy chief of staff in 2004 and 2005. And I've been running the Florida Justice Reform Institute, which is a 501c4 advocacy organization that advocates for tort reform in all three branches of government since uh, late 2005. Well, as it relates to tort reform, it seems like, I mean, I I wasn't too far behind you moving to Tallahassee in 2002. And it seems like during our legislative session, they're often talking about different tort reform measures and things of that nature. I know they had, there was quite a bit of activity in this area, this session, which is what we're here to talk about. But is there a little bit of a history of tort reform that you can provide our audience just to kind of give them a little bit of a snippet of what's happened in Florida? And even to a certain extent, I mean, is Florida unique with tort reform or other states doing other things historically? Yeah, I think that the concept of tort reform or lawsuit abuse reform or civil justice reform, that's something that really, I think, took hold around the country beginning in the early 1990s. You saw this happen in Texas in the mid-1990s and other states. And the idea is to make our civil justice system more fair and equitable for all of Florida's citizens and not push the scales of justice in favor of either plaintiffs or defendants. And many people felt that the scales of justice had been pushed in favor of the plaintiffs over the years. And as a result, many organizations, many stakeholder groups began to advocate for reforming our civil justice system. 
In Florida, we've seen a lot of these debates take place in various different years. It occurred in 1999, medical malpractice reform in 2002, 2003. Um, You saw very specific issues, whether it be slip and fall litigation or products liability litigation or litigation with respect to uh, one-way attorney fees issues. Those issues pop up from time to time. But here in 2023, this became a very important subject for Governor Ron DeSantis, and it presented itself again. So it's got a long history in the country and a history here in Florida as well. Tiffany, can you tell us a little bit about tort systems across the United States, what they look like, and kind of how this new tort reform legislation fits into all that? Sure. Well, I guess tort system is a very broad term, but generally we're referring to torts, which are causes of action brought by plaintiffs against defendants premised on ideas of things like negligence or battery or assault. So it's a system of civil liability where if the plaintiff is wronged in some way, they have recourse, they can potentially sue that the person who caused their harm for damages. So the, the topics covered by this legislation are very broad. They cover everything from negligence to bad faith, which I'm sure are both topics that William could speak in greater detail about. But, you know, all of these concepts can be found across the country. I think particularly with something like comparative negligence, like previously Florida followed pure comparative negligence, which meant that if the plaintiff, you know, regardless of the fault of the plaintiff, they could recover in proportion to, you know, however the defendants, there was consideration of both the fault, the plaintiff and the defendant. Under this legislation, Florida is moving to modified comparative negligence, where if there's a there's a threshold now that if the plaintiff is at fault for their own injury to a certain percent, which I think is uh, 50 percent or greater, then they can't recover from the defendant. The systems of comparative negligence versus contributory negligence, if there's even a little bit of fault that's attributable to the plaintiff, they can't recover. Modified comparative negligence instead weighs those and there's a threshold which if the plaintiff's fault meets that threshold, they can't recover. But if it doesn't, they can otherwise recover from the defendant. So Florida's moving to modify comparative negligence through this legislation, but that is something that's followed in probably about 35 states about at this point. So it's actually the norm. Um, Other concepts like bad faith, I think, are just particular to Florida. So some of those concepts are probably unique in the legislation, and you wouldn't find those necessarily in other states. So let's talk a little bit about the change to a modified comparative negligence liability system. Can you walk us through what it would look like uh, for plaintiff A, who is 60% at fault uh, for his or her injuries, and plaintiff B, who is 40% at fault for his or her injuries? What difference does this bill make to each of those two hypothetical plaintiffs? That is contained in section nine of the bill. And I think what the legislators were trying to address is who actually caused this accident to occur. So let's let's take a fact pattern. Someone who is 60% at fault on a million-dollar verdict. In that fact pattern, the defendant, in my hypothetical, there's a one plaintiff and one defendant, and the plaintiff is 60% at fault and the defendant is found by the jury to be 40% at fault, that means the defendant owes $400,000, 0.4 times a million, okay? 
I think a lot of the legislators struggled with this, saying, well, if you're 60% at fault, maybe you are the main contributing cause to this accident and you shouldn't be able to recover. So now, as a result of HB 837, because in this hypothetical, the plaintiff is 60% at fault, they wouldn't be able to recover at all. Well, Tiffany is right that uh, the bill does cover quite quite a range of topics, um, and I think it'd be helpful to go through each of those topics and really address what reforms the bill makes. So, William, can you talk about some of the, the changes that were made to claims for insurance bad faith? Uh, and for starters, if you could explain to our audience what insurance bad faith is and then what reforms uh, the bill makes to those claims. Sure. If you look at the Section 4 of the bill, it deals with third-party bad faith. And what was occurring in Florida when three things were present? Low insurance limits, clear liability, and extraordinary damages well in excess of the low limits, such as a death, a quadriplegic, a paraplegic. When those three things were present, most plaintiff's attorneys did not want to settle the case for the insurance limits. On the other hand, the insurer was attempting to settle the case as soon as possible. But many times, insurance companies were being set up for what is known as a third-party bad faith case, and their actions in trying to settle the liability case were looked at. And oftentimes, no matter how quickly the insurance company was trying to tender the limits, if they tendered on day 14, there would be an argument that they didn't tender quick enough. So what this bill addresses is primarily the time frame that allows an insurer to tender. So in section four of the bill and subsection four of section four, there's a 90-day safe harbor. If an insurer tenders within that time frame, they cannot be held in bad faith over and above the policy limits. And this is an opportunity for an insurer to tender. Previously, the law in Florida, which still remains under a case called Powell versus Prudential, and these are known as Powell claims, an insurer has a duty to tender in the absence of a demand where the facts and circumstances are clear that there is clear liability. But what wasn't clear was the time to tender. Now, this law makes that very clear. An insurer will have 90 days to tender, and that will create a safe harbor for the insurer, and they won't be held in bad faith if they do that over and above their policy limits if they tender within 90 days. Can you also talk a little bit about the changes that were made to uh, the entitlement to attorney's fees in insurance cases? I think that that was a pretty prominent part of the bill that a lot of people have discussed. If you could walk us through those changes, that would be helpful. Yes, Section 2, Section 10, and Section 11 of the bill deal with an issue with respect to one-way attorney's fee provisions. There are two one-way fee statutes affected here. One is Florida Statute 627-428, and the legislature abrogated that statute in Section 11. And the other is the one-way fee 
for surplus lines, 626-9373. And the legislature abrogated that statute in Section 10. And what um, I think a lot of legislators and policymakers were struggling with is that there was a lot of litigation over low dollar amounts. So what the one-way fee was doing was it was encouraging litigation over small dollar amounts, such as lawsuits over a dollar, $10, $100. And the legislature wanted to address that. Now, they also addressed something else by creating a new provision in the Chapter 86 for declaratory actions. And that is, if there's a denial of coverage completely, an insured is entitled to fees in that case. And that's Section 2 of the bill. So you kind of got to read Section 2, Section 10, and 11 of the bill together. And that was sort of the logic that the legislators, you know, had put together when addressing that issue. It's kind of the thought behind that, William, that they want the cases to actually be about real issues and harm and not just about lawyer fees. Is that kind of the concept behind it? They like you mentioned that the damages might be a dollar, but the attorney, you know, these one way provisions, did the case end up being more about fees than it was about the harm? Yeah, Mia, uh, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think legislators saw that in the property context in uh, special session A and the tail end of 2022. And they also saw it in other contexts like PIP and auto glass cases where it wasn't about the amount in controversy. Instead, it was about the fees. So when you saw these lawsuits brought over $100, it wasn't about getting the insured $100. It was about the attorney's fees associated with the litigation over the $100. And I think that legislators felt that that needed to be addressed because it was creating circumstances of vexatious litigation. Let's talk about the, I guess, what we talk about, letters of protection disclosures, LOPs. Can you tell us a little, Is if I recall, I think that's addressed in this bill as well. Um, and maybe tell us a little bit about what that is and what changes have been made in that regard. Yeah, that is in Section 6 of the bill. And an LOP is short form for a letter of protection. And it's a promise to pay a health care provider in the future when a verdict or settlement comes in. But what legislators were seeing with letters of protection is that they were grossly overinflated with respect to what the market price was for healthcare services in the relevant geographic area. So it wouldn't be unusual for someone to be injured and they had health insurance and they were being told by their attorney not to use their health insurance not to see their personal physician, but instead see a physician that was referred to them by the plaintiff's attorney in question, who would treat them under the letter of protection. And the letter of protection, the face value of it, it's like an IOU, it's a promise to pay in the future. The face value might be $80,000. But had the plaintiff used their health insurance, the charges may have been $10,000. The value of 
most negligence cases are really built upon the foundation of past medicals. The bigger past medicals are, the bigger the value of an overall case tends to be. In South Florida, the value of a case tends to be a multiple of about four times past medicals. In North Florida, it tends to be three times past medicals. So if past medicals were um, approximately $80,000 in South Florida, I'd expect a verdict to hit on a clear liability fact pattern of about $320,000. But if the past medicals were $10,000, I'd expect a verdict to come in at about $40,000. So there was an incentive, therefore, to increase past medicals through the use of letters of protection. And likewise, the referral of the plaintiff to the treating doctor that was using the letter of protection, that was protected by attorney-client privilege under a case called Worley versus YMCA. That was also addressed by this legislation. And now people will be able to expose that bias of that referral and juries will be able to hear how did the plaintiff get to the treating doctor that used the letter of protection. Tiffany, that uh, opens up an obvious question about some of the evidentiary guidelines that are in this rule and what gets to be in front of a jury and what doesn't. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So that's um, also in Section 6 of the legislation, and it creates a new statute in Chapter 768 describing the types of evidence that are admissible now to show uh, show essentially what William was talking about, both past medicals and future medical expenses that a plaintiff might be seeking damages. And so it outlines the certain circumstances in which you can admit, you know, what types of evidence might be admissible to show those damages. And I think it's largely getting at the collateral source rule, which otherwise forecloses the admit the admission of certain collateral sources that might be available to recover a plaintiff's damages or medical expenses. And so it, it the legislation pretty much breaks it down by the type of damages we're talking about. So for past medical expenses that have already been paid for, the statute says you know, you're limited to essentially what was paid. That's the that's the evidence that you could admit. When it comes to medical expenses that are technically already incurred, but that are not yet paid, the legislation says, here's the evidence that can come in. And same for future medical expenses that you want damages for. I think it's still fairly broad in allowing all of this information to come in. There is a provision later in the statute that ultimately says, though, that what can be recovered by the plaintiff is damages encompasses what was described previously, which are what's what the evidence that's admissible to show those damages. But I, I think the the point of the legislation is to try to limit damages to, you know, actual reasonable, necessary medical expenses. I notice another aspect of this bill uh, has to do with this so-called multiplier as relates to attorney's fees and costs. Tiffany, can you can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Uh, that's not a term that ordinary parlance people refer to, but tell us a little bit about what a multiplier is. Yes, and I don't even know that the legislation uses the term multiplier, but I can tell you that that's what it's targeting in Section 1 of the bill, which describes generally how attorney's fee awards are calculated. And the basic way 
it, that you calculate that is the load star fee, which means you know, what is the reasonable hourly rate of that attorney times multiplied by the reasonable amount of hours they expended on something. So it's pretty much a basic uh, calculation. There are cases that in which the Florida Supreme Court and other courts have said that when it's a contingency fee case, when they're when the lawyers agree to take on this matter and they're they're getting paid as contingent upon success, that perhaps in those cases we should apply a multiplier, which means we're going to take the lodestar, the basic calculation of hours expended times the attorney's hourly rate, and multiply that by one and a half to two times the amount. The idea being there should be so there should be some kind of uh, consideration for the fact that it was contingent. To take a step back, that multiplier, there's prior case law said that that kind of multiplier would apply in only rare and exceptional circumstances. But a few years ago, the Florida Supreme Court ruled in a case called Joyce, they said, no, it should be, that should not be limited to rare and exceptional circumstances. So this legislation is plainly meant to address that and to say that there is a strong presumption that that lodestar fee, that basic calculation of hours times rate is a sufficient and reasonable attorney's fee award, and that that presumption may be overcome only in a rare and exceptional circumstance, which is arguably what the case law said prior to the Joyce decision. One of the other areas that the bill affects is uh, the issue of premises liability um, and when uh, the owner or operator of a certain property can be held liable uh, for different injuries that occur on that property. William, can you talk about some of the reforms the bill made uh, to that area of the law governing torts? Yeah, that area of the bill is um, Section 7 and Section 8 of the bill. Section 7 deals with now the ability to put an intentional tortfeasor on the verdict form in a premises liability case. And I think what the legislators were hearing, they were hearing a lot of fact patterns where a tragic fact pattern had unfolded at an apartment complex where someone may have been assaulted or even murdered. And the plaintiff or the estate of the decedent brought a lawsuit against the owner of the apartment complex, claiming that the security was insufficient, arguing that there should have been better lighting, there should have been a deputy sheriff available for security. And under the law prior to the passage of HB 837, the only entities that can go on the verdict form were the defendant, in this case, in this hypothetical, the apartment complex. Now, the individual that had perpetrated the act will also be considered by the jury. And I think what was happening there is the legislators wanted the jury to hear all the facts that had led to the injury, including the acts of the intentional tortfeasor. Section eight of the bill deals with a presumption for apartment complexes if they do certain things. And if they do certain things, that creates an affirmative defense for them. One of the first cases that I handled actually was for my family, and it was a premises liability. And William, we are not going to talk about how long ago that was. Um, in the very beginning of my career, but it was a, fortunately, we did not have that type of situation that happened, but there was a property theft and it was, 
you know, taking my parents who owned the property and trying to explain to them why they were responsible for something that really had nothing to do with them. They had never had any type of crimes or anything stolen off the property in the past to put them on notice that they needed to do anything or that people from the local hotel were actually parking on the property. So it does present a lot of um, you know issues and in practical concerns for property owners. And so hopefully this will will help in, in some way. Um, what is the effective date? If you want to understand the effective date issues in the bill, look at sections 28. 29. Are they staggered some or? Well, section 28 of the bill specifically addresses the statute of limitations issues. Now, let me just address the statute of limitations issue because I segued over to section 28 of the bill. But in Florida, prior to this bill, a negligence action, the statute of limitations would have been four years. It is now two years because of this bill. Section 28 of the bill makes it clear that the accrual time has to accrue after the effective date of this bill. So that's what Section 28 addresses. Section 29 of the bill addresses instances where individuals have an insurance contract purchased prior to the effective date, and the insurance contract would run after the effective date. And the legislature made it clear with Section 29 that the provisions of the insurance contract entered into before the effective date are not not affected. And there's a case called Menendez out of the Florida Supreme Court that addresses that. So that's what Section 29 of the bill addresses. And then Section 30 addresses the effective date and all toward actions after the signing of the effective date um, will be under the new bill, absent the insurance contract issue in Section 29. Well, in, in light of that, it's my understanding that there was quite a bit of activity in some of the courthouses across the state is where people, I don't know if I read somewhere, but you know they were hurrying to the courthouse. Is that Race the courthouse, yeah. Right, race to the courthouse. Is that what was going? Is, was some of that going on last week, Tiffany? For people not wanting to run out on their statute of limitations or have the new portions of the bill apply to them? Yes, that's my understanding. I think there's been some press about there was a, a definite uptick in filings. I suppose on Thursday before the bill was signed. I know I saw some press indicating that there were clerks working overtime over the weekend to get everything filed, but presumably that is because of the effective date of the legislation. Well, even more than that, I guess that raises. So what's the real real world impact, you know, for the average Florida citizen trying to understand what does this mean for me? Uh, William, how would you describe that? I think this is a big day for the average Florida citizen. I think that this bill is going to make our civil justice system more fair and equitable for all of Florida's citizens. I believe a lot of the litigation that we've seen and that the legislature heard about, legislature felt was a cost driver for all Florida citizens. And I think this is going to make our civil justice system beneficial for everyone. William, is there anything we haven't touched on about the bill that you think is important to bring up? 
I think that uh, we've covered all the issues. I mean, I think this was extraordinary leadership on the part of the governor, on the part of the Senate president and the Speaker of the Florida House and the two um, main sponsors in the House and Senate, uh, Senator Hudson and um, Representative Tommy Gregory. They spent a lot of time, effort and energy uh, listening to stakeholders, getting these issues together. Uh, learning about certain issues with respect to our civil um, justice system. And they ended up having several committee hearings on these subjects and um, I think came up with a, a fair and equitable final product. Tiffany, is there anything else that you want to add to this? I appreciate both you and William kind of walking us through what's very complicated, but do you, is there anything else that we should probably let our audience know about that you think is super important? I will say that I think this is a sea change in um, our civil justice system. I'm sure that, you know, as we've seen in the press, there's already been a lot of concern from the trial bar about these changes. So it'll be, it will be interesting to see how all the changes unfold and how these provisions get applied in the courts. William, the burning question I want to know is, are our Gators going to be any better next football season? My my prediction is they are going to be better, and um, we have a lot to look forward to uh, next season. I want to thank William Large and Tiffany Roddenberry for this informative and interesting set of comments on Florida tort reform. And I also want to thank my co-hosts, Mia McCallan and Brent Cooper. Most of all, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Please plan to join us for our next Florida Capital Conversations podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Florida Capital Conversations. For more information on our Tallahassee office, please visit hklaw.com slash Tallahassee.